Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to this episode of The Christopher Perrin Show. This is a podcast that is a part of the TrueNorth.fm podcast network, and you can see our other podcasts at TrueNorth.fm. I also want to just remind you that the many of the things in which I talk about are also available in video form on ClassicalU.com, usually in longer forms, uh, longer lectures of maybe 30 minutes or so. These podcasts tend to stay around 15 to 20 minutes. That's ClassicalU.com. Also, if you want to follow my writing, I'm often writing on some of the same topics that I speak about on this podcast. You can follow me at ChristopherPerrin.Substack.com. Today, I want to continue our conversation about the four cardinal virtues and address the cardinal virtue of justice. In a previous episode, I've talked about the cardinal virtue of prudence, and prudence is often seen as the governing virtue of all four of them. Uh, Prudence is that virtue that helps us to contemplate and know what is actually real. To know the real state of affairs is important before we act. And justice is something that follows prudence in, in logical order to act properly according to what is really real. Uh, In one of the episodes in which we were addressing prudence, I mentioned this uh, kind of business wisdom that is is well known from a book written by Jim Collins, Good to Great, in which he distills one of the great principles that uh, tend to uh, typify great companies, and that is facing the brutal reality. Great companies and great leaders of companies are willing to face squarely the real situation that the company faces, to know it deeply and well, so that the actions that that company would take would follow on that clear perception of the market conditions, the company's conditions, etc. So do we really understand what is real? That's prudence. And so prudence logically does come first before justice and before temperance and before courage or fortitude because uh, justice, temperance, and fortitude bring into action virtues that are based on an understanding of reality. Justice is, is properly ordering our actions according to what's real to what would be just. So, well, what is justice? That's what we will address in this episode to kind of give us um, an overall understanding of this this great virtue. And and then in some uh, subsequent uh, podcasts, we'll talk about how in more particular ways can justice be applied to our contemporary situation. Well, what is justice? Well, first of all, this is a a time uh, in which we are asking the question. In our culture today in the 21st century, justice is frequently talked about, though very rarely defined. Do we know what justice is? No no justice, no peace. Social justice. Uh, people have some, have some, some um, certainly experiences with injustice and cry out for justice. Uh, even children will, will, can clearly perceive when things are not fair. So, to children of the same age sitting sitting at the table, dessert being served, three cookies to one and one cookie to the other, well, this is certainly not a fair distribution. This is not just. And even those three-year-olds 
can perceive a kind of injustice at this point. This is a time where people are claiming rights. Uh, there's much talk about human rights. Uh, this is, there's a time when there is war always seemingly going on around the world. And what is a just war? Is it just that Russia has invaded Ukraine or not? Is it a just war? Um, war crimes. Um, what about following unjust uh, commands from illegitimate authorities or unjust or unlaw unlawful authorities? What about capital punishment? What about equal rights for, and then fill in the blank, equal rights? Uh, people are claiming rights for all kinds of new classifications and designations, animal rights, plant rights. Well, one of the things that we, we encounter in the tradition, in the classical tradition, is that our ability to discern justice seems to come from our experience of its opposite, injustice. We, we encounter evil and suffering in the world. All of us do. We observe it in others. We experience it ourselves. So this is one of our uh, frequent and troubling experiences to, 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 to encounter some form of evil and suffering, some injustice. In fact, this is what uh, Aristotle says. The many forms of injustice make justice clear. But where does this idea of justice come from? What's its origin? And by the way, let me pause just for a moment to say I am indebted to a number of writers. Joseph uh, uh, Pieper's book on the four cardinal virtues, I'm following him closely. Uh, so I'm not saying too much that's original. Uh, if you want to do a deep study of the virtue tradition, uh, starting with Joseph Pieper, or even a, a beginning study, a light study, a beginning, a great book is Joseph uh, Pieper's The Four Cardinal Virtues. Justice, uh, nonetheless, we, we seem to know what it is, but it, it, it can be described in various ways. And in, in the tradition, there are a number of ways we describe justice, but uh, Pieper and Aquinas, uh, you know, writing in the 1200s, argues that there's one high-level, simple, rolled-up definition for what justice is, and it's simply this. Each man is to be given his due, and it therefore would be unjust if what is rightly due to someone is either hindered or taken away. Each man is to be given his due. And therefore, it's unjust if what is due is withheld or taken away by some other person. We see this idea of each man is to be given his due, each human being, each woman is to be given her due, is in Plato and Aristotle, Cicero, Ambrose, Augustine. It was enshrined in Roman law. It's, it's well known. Justice as well, according to Thomas, has to be a habit in order to be a virtue. If you don't act justly, then, well, you don't have the virtue of justice. You might have a decent concept of justice. You might know what it is. You might uh, be able to articulate this definition of justice, giving each person his or her due. You might know uh, the, ver the varieties of injustice as well. But if you don't have virtue as a habit, well, then you don't embody justice and you're not a just person. So Thomas says this, justice is a habit whereby a man renders to each one his due 
with constant and perpetual will. So, are you a just person? Do you endeavor to give to each person his or her due with perpetual, constant will? Do your students, do they even know that this is what justice should be? Um, Augustine writes that, showing some other shades of meaning to the word justice, to the concept of justice, that is establishing justice is the order among things, to establish order among things properly placed with proper emphasis, proper distribution. This is justice. And as we'll see in a, in, a, in a subsequent episode, there is a distributive justice of properly distributing goods to those. And there is a retributive or punitive justice in which when people deserve punishment for unjust acts, that should be meted out as well. Distributive and retributive justice. Augustine writes as well, justice is that ordering of the soul by virtue, by virtue of which it comes to pass that we are no man's servant, but servants of God alone. This idea that what the Christian owes is primarily service to God, to be not obligated to man except only first being obligated to God, God alone. So you can just see there, I'm just citing that as Peeper does to remind us that there are some other shades of justice, but you can see the relationship to giving to each according to his or her due. But what is each man's due? If, if it's true that we should give to each uh, what is due, well, then what is actually due? This question arises, of course. And how does anything come to belong to a person anyway? How... How does it come to be that I would be owed anything? People ask this question, and why is everyone else obligated to give this thing to me? So, for example, uh, what, what am I do as a human being? I, I would say that, it, as the Declaration says, I should be able to pursue my own life and pursue happiness and liberty. So if somebody hinders me from, say, choosing what kind of work I want to pursue, I would view that as an infraction of liberty, and I am due the freedom, the liberty, to pursue different kinds of work. And I would, if someone tried to prevent me from pursuing a particular kind of work, I'd view that as unjust. Well, how is it that everybody should be obligated to not hinder me from my vocational choices? How is it that that obligation has come upon you to prevent me from trying to work in classical education and publishing? We read, If the act of justice is to give each man his due, then the act of justice is preceded by the act whereby something becomes his due. This is people writing. In other words, justice is something that comes second after a realization that there is a right for justice. This rights come before justice. I seem to have, first, a right not to be hindered to choose what kind of work I want to do. Secondly, everyone is obligated to, to not hinder me. And of course, 
I am obligated not to hinder you from the vocational choices that you would make. But there seems to be a preceding, pre-existent right for you to pursue unhindered your vocation. Where does that come from? How would you answer that question? How is this the state of affairs? On what basis? By what standard? On what, by what grounds do you claim that you have this right? Just your mere assertion? Well, the answer in the classical and Christian tradition is creation, that we are created beings and that there is a creator over us who, 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 who embeds these rights into our existence as human beings. Now, Pieper writes, uh, and quoting Thomas Aquinas, that creation itself, however, is not an act of justice. Um, it's a free gift that we've been created. We didn't choose to be here. Here we are. Uh, There's some surprises that come from uh, being born into this world. Even Jesterson says your parents appear like brigands from behind a bush. You mean these two people are my parents? And he says every face is like a face out of a fairy tale. Oh, some, some of these adventures are challenging, uh, uh, but good and blessed too. But it's a gift. Creation is a gift. You are a gift. So it's not an act of justice, but it's a gift. And the, therefore, the rights seem to be embedded into our created being and into creation itself. Now, others have thought about this. Uh, Aquinas said this has been this has been you know written about for for centuries. But if someone is not a theist, if someone is not in the Christian tradition. If someone doesn't believe that the universe and this earth was created and that we're created beings, then by what basis can you ground human rights of any kind? Where do they come from? How do you ground them? How do you give them authority? Why should there be any obligation if there's no God and we're not created? Well, uh, a really bright uh, agnostic or atheist uh, lawyer who's written a lot of books, Alan Dershowitz, actually writes a pretty interesting book about this. It's called Rights from Wrongs, a Secular Theory of the Origin of Rights. And this was published in 2004. And he's trying to uh, base uh, human rights in something other than God, other than nature, logic or law, and he bases it in our particular experience of injustice. And he wants to say, by trial and error, as it were, we encounter so much injustice that this is how we can know what is just, and we formulate our own view of justice. But it's not grounded in something permanent like creation or even nature. Uh, now, in my opinion, these theories fail uh, just doing, just trying to formulate a view of human rights based on experience might lead to some similar viewpoints, but it's not stable, and it seems to me it's very weak, and and subsequent to some very uh, pertinent and devastating criticism. Why should I do anything if I'm not obligated because of my creation? It could be law. But law itself seems, in a, in, in, if it's not rooted in creation, is arbitrary and can change. And why should your law impose my freedom and liberty to take something from you or to hinder you, perhaps even in some cases to take your life if it's to my advantage? And you can see how certain forms of, say, an 
atheistic Darwinian materialism could lead to tooth and claw and survival of the fittest being expressed in that kind of an ethic. Now, to be fair, most Darwinists, atheist materialists don't take that view, but I don't think their view is consistent, or I don't think they have a good argument to prohibit others who would choose to act in different ways, to be violent, to and to take and to hinder. If because it does seem to be a logical uh, uh, out, outplaying of the survival of the fittest. But I digress. Creation has been viewed in the classical and in the classical Christian, uh, Christian tradition as grounding human rights. Uh, Aquinas mentions that uh, what can be due to a person can be a thing or an action. So, for example, if you've, if you've performed some labor for someone, you could barter and you could say, I will you know, plant a garden for you, and in exchange, I would enjoy having some eggs and chickens, and that, that the bartering, uh, that could be one way of giving a thing to someone as something that is, that is due for an action you perform. But it could also be action for action. Um, I will plant your garden, and you will paint my house. Um, I'm using simple examples, but this this translates into very complicated exchanges as well, where there we have laws and contracts and written agreements too. But there's also this understanding that you have an action, uh, an obligated action in some cases, to just not do something. And but going back to my example, uh, I have an obligation not to hinder you from pursuing with liberty, your own vocational choices. And you have that same obligation to me, just not to do something. So sometimes we're obligated to do things, sometimes we're obligated not to do things. Now, another important point in this tradition is to note that when you do act unjustly, the tradition says, starting with Socrates, and we read about this in the Gorgias, that when you do injure someone or act unjustly, you actually injure yourself more than the recipient of your injustice. Now, isn't that interesting? And why would that be the case? If you steal from someone, you deprive that person of something that you have taken. But Socrates would say, you injure your soul and you do yourself greater harm by becoming a thief. And this would be the case of you know, lying or injuring somebody, any other kinds of acts of injustice, evil, or suffer, you know, bringing suffering on someone in various forms, you injure yourself more. And why is this? It's because justice belongs to one's being or soul. It's to be a virtue. And so then to, to be a thief is to act viciously. That means the opposite of virtue. And therefore, you are diminishing your soul, and this is the greater harm. That's worth thinking about. And if you're a classical educator or a parent, this is worth pursuing with your students and children. What does happen to one? What happens to a person when they habitually engage in, say, thievery or lying or lust or, 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 or violence? Or, or, or a host of other vices. That's worth exploring, and perhaps we will in a, in, a, in a subsequent episode. The nature of the thing is something that Thomas pulls out, that there, there is something about nature 
that, according to Thomas and many before him and after, are law-like. And so this leads to the doctrine of a natural law. It is a it is a law that we understand from nature and creation that we ought not to steal from one another or take one another's lives. And this is something that leads to, therefore, natural rights. You Do you have a natural right rooted in nature and creation such that you have the right to live, the right to your own life? Well, this might bring to your mind a famous document, an American document, the Declaration of Independence. And there's an interesting history because when Thomas Jefferson did the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, he said that we hold uh, these rights uh, sacred and undeniable, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He called those sacred and undeniable. And then he had Ben Franklin take a look at his draft and Franklin said, no, let's not use that phrase, sacred and undeniable. Let's say this, we hold these rights to be self-evident. So Franklin is reflecting on this idea of natural law and natural rights. These are self-evident. They don't need an argument. Uh, they don't, you don't need any other evidence for this fact that you have a natural right, being a human being born into this cosmos, to liberty and life and the pursuit of happiness, as well as your vocation. Isn't that interesting that that was changed? And then it was also added that, that these rights were endowed by their creator, that there is a creator God who is behind nature, who created nature, and then therefore who is behind these rights. These rights in the Declaration of Independence are grounded in nature and nature's God, the creator. Now, that doesn't mean it's a Christian God. And so those like Jefferson and others who might have been deists could subscribe to this, but they're still subscribing to something that is also true of Christian theology. There is a law, Paul says in Romans 2, that's written on the hearts of men. And in Romans 1, he says, we even know things about God, his eternal power, by virtue of what has been made. So in the Christian tradition, yes, natural rights are grounded in creation and in the God who has created, in our creator. Now, this might lead you to ask the question, well, what about creatures other than humans? Do, does my dog, I have a Vishla Hungarian hunting hound, really love him, I love, have, I love dogs. What kind of rights does my dog have? If, can I promise him a particular treat for behaving a certain way? And am I obligated to keep that promise? And if I don't, am I guilty of violating some natural right? Well, you can see that these kinds of fundamental doctrines, what, what is a human starts to, starts to emerge as an important question. What are humans qualitatively different than say the canine world? And the tradition says yes, uh, because they've been created in God's image, particularly in the Christian and classical tradition, that human beings are set apart to be stewards who responsibly bless and care for creation. And of course, there's also this doctrine of the fall and humans haven't always done that well. They continue not to do that well, but that is nonetheless the ideal and the calling 
So I would want to treat my dog well as a steward, but it seems that my obligation to my dog, to my vishla, is different than to my wife and to my neighbor. Because I have an anthropology, a concept of man. And so your doctrine, your dogma of what a human being is, grounds your obligation to other human beings. Sartre was one, who, and the existentialists, say, of the 60s and 70s, who, who argued that there was no human nature. And if there is no human nature, no human essence, then it's still an anthropology. It's a way of describing um, uh, humans, but just describing them as not having a fixed nature. And so if there is, this is people writing, if there is no human nature on the basis of which alone there is an inalienable obligation to man, how can we escape the consequence, do whatever you think is fit with a man? So if humans have no essence, no nature, doesn't it follow that you can treat them how you wish? Pieper concludes, man has inalienable rights because he is a created person by the act of God. This is how we ground the notion of what is just. So he says as well that these fundamental truths must be constantly pondered anew lest they lose their fruitfulness. And so that's what I hope to do in the subsequent episodes on justice, is just to ponder anew uh, justice and apply it to our contemporary situation where there's so much call for justice and also so much confusion about it. I hope that you'll join me for those episodes. And once again, I want to thank you for listening or viewing to the Christopher Perrin Show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for watching or listening to The Christopher Perrin Show. And to do that, I can give you a coupon code that will give you 10% off on anything that you might care to order at classicalacademicpress.com. And the coupon code is simply CPSHOW. Thanks again for listening or watching.